So I think what is expensive is uh, um, poorly targeted treatment, you know, and chasing the symptoms in the way that the current guidelines sort of almost endorse. Um, and I would suggest that treatable traits is actually much more efficient and effective and cost-effective approach. You are listening to Treatable Traits on Asthma. This series is intended for healthcare professionals that are interested in being updated within asthma. You will be updated according to available science and the speaker's clinical experiences. Take time to subscribe for this podcast on the channel you're using so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to the next episode of Treatable Traits. In this episode, we are focusing on the different models of care in asthma patients. My name is Professor Wiebeke Bagger. I'm professor at the main university hospital, Rigshospitalet, Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark. With me, I have Professor Ian Pavor from UK and Professor Peter Gibson from Australia. Peter, how is your perspective on the different models of care? Yeah, so this is, a, I think, a really crucial topic and Treatable Traits has a lot to offer. Uh, different clinicians in different settings or seeing d different types of patients. And what Treatable Traits has to offer is it's a way of adapting your expertise and resources to the type of problem that's presented to you. So we, what we've learned Uh, there was a large study of treatable traits called the Novelty Study, and it assessed many thousands of people in many countries for several different treatable traits. That had we got several key learnings from that that are relevant to models of care. Interestingly, treatable traits across different countries were quite similar, so there, there's not a geographic difference. Where there was a difference was in disease severity and in setting, primary care versus tertiary care. So what that tells us is how we deliver care to someone with asthma in a tertiary setting is going to be different to primary care, and treatable traits allows us to adapt to that. A good model for a tertiary setting is where you assess many traits with many different specialists and allied health professionals contributing to that assessment. And you put together that complex assessment into a single treatment package and work together with the patient to implement that. So that, that can address really complex uh, conditions such as severe asthma with multiple comorbidities. Mm. Primary care, however, is less doesn't have all those resources, and so you need to define a different model of care. And there you focus on what are the key traits that are prevalent in that setting, and they're things like uh, T2 inflammation, airflow obstruction, comorbidities such as anxiety, depression, triggers such as smoking, and behavioural factors such as non-adherence and poor inhaler technique. Ian, um, in your... Your center, which is certainly a tertiary center, 
Do you have specific areas for or specific days for elderly with asthma and adolescents with asthma? Yeah, that's a, a, a good question. We uh, adolescents, I think, are a particularly uh, challenging uh, group of uh, patients, uh, and we we offer a combined clinic with a pediatrician because they're they're often transitioning from uh, pediatric t- care. It's also a time where asthma changes quite a lot. So in boys particularly, you can see a big improvement in symptoms. I don't think the disease changes that much, actually, but I think the symptoms can certainly change. Um, But it's also a time where uh, people make poor decisions. Generally, adolescents are not known for their good decision-making. And, you know, that, that can include poor decisions with treatment, and poor decisions with uh, smoking, exposure, drug-taking, etc. Yeah, it is a time, a a turbulent time, let's say, uh, where um, there are particular challenges. In the older population, we we tend to see traits that are more commonly associated with COPD, so airway damage, um, fixed airflow obstruction, uh, deconditioning, uh, and and yeah, I, I can see the sort of COPD clinic being quite a relevant place for those patients. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, we we don't treat our older patients with asthma in a different setting, but we do treat the adolescents. Peter, do you, when you take care of the uh, pregnant uh, women with asthma, do you have a combined clinic as well? Uh, we ha- no, we don't have a combined clinic, but all the services are on the same hospital campus. So maternity services, asthma, and the um, the nurse. So our nurse educator will visit the antenatal clinic uh, to see patients. So in that, it's combined in that sense. Mm. But and then we'll what one thing that we've offered, uh, which was driven by COVID, actually was a telehealth service. So, understandably, the main priority for a pregnant woman is the health of the baby. Asthma is often not the highest priority, and so we've found that offering a telehealth asthma clinic has been quite beneficial a way of engaging people in asthma care whilst maintaining their primary focus on maternity care. And I can tell that in the uh, ENT uh, department where I'm working, we have a combined clinic where I'm sitting with a specialist in ENT and then I'm a specialist in pulmonology, and the two of us are taking care of the patient in a combined fashion. And I think it's important in this setting because the surgeons do not have the same knowledge concerning type 2 inflammation, biomarkers, and lung function, and pheno. So that had um, brought the area where I'm working to a new level. Yeah, Somebody would say it's expensive. I've heard that several times. Combined clinics are expensive. Do you think that as well, Ian? That uh, a combined clinic could be expensive. Yeah, I, I mean, I get that, but but uh, let's consider things in a different way. I mean, this work needs to be done. Um, what we're talking about is doing it efficiently and maximizing uh, the skill set so that the patient's sitting in front of the right person. What is really expensive, Vibeka, is throwing 
you know, high-dose inhaled steroids and um, oral steroids and biologics at uh, a, a patient with uh, symptoms but no evidence of modifiable disease. So this approach of uh, what, what I call chasing the symptoms, which causes so much issues in our clinic, you know, the polypharmacy in, in the UK, we, we did a, a study, the RASP UK study, where we looked at this group of patients. Interestingly, it's a female predominant population with a very high prevalence of obesity, where they have very symptom high but risk low disease. So very high symptoms but low biomarkers. And you know, the treatment regimes that these patients are on are incredible. The highest dose of everything, you know, and they remain very symptomatic. And we, we were able to show in the RASP UK study, and I think Ruth Green showed this 20 years ago, that you can actually down titrate treatment in these patients without any loss of control. Or that in many of these patients, you can identify potentially other more relevant treatable traits, such as obesity, which has become in the last few years a very treatable issue. You know, uh, so so I really focus on that now. And uh, anxiety, dysfunctional breathing, uh, the very pre prevalent. Uh, so I think what is expensive is uh, um, poorly targeted treatment you know, and chasing the symptoms in the way that the current guidelines sort of almost endorse. Um, and I would suggest that treatable traits is actually much more efficient and effective and cost-effective approach. Now when we are talking about the obese females, Peter, you have shown that uh, weight loss Uh, increase the uh, the asthma control, and I have shown that uh, high intensity training can increase the asthma control. Could we um, kind of make combined treatment, or do you already have combined treatment with a dietitian or sports medicine? Uh, I think there definitely is a place for for targeting BMI, so body weight for improving respiratory symptoms in asthma. And you do need a dietitian's help if you're going to... So the intervention that we used was uh, low-calorie diets. So you need a dietitian's assistance uh, if you're using, for example, meal replacements with that, uh, or if you're using any, any of the newer oral agents. One point I want to make about obesity is... There's there's historically been therapeutic nihilism around obesity in many aspects of medicine, but I think there's two two things to be aware of. One is we're not here in we're seeing a person with respiratory disease who's got complex problems and symptoms such as breathlessness, and where we believe that the BMI is contributing to that. We're not there to try and cure obesity. What we're trying to do is ask the question, will reduction in body weight improve the person's respiratory status? And we know that you only have to achieve a 5% to 10% reduction in body weight to improve respiratory status. 
improve asthma control. Same's true for a sleep apnea, same's true for hypertension. You don't have to completely reverse obesity and cure it. You just need a five to 10% reduction in body weight to, to address the medical condition that you're dealing with. Uh, and that is achievable by many different uh, regimes around uh, low calorie diets, as, as well as some of the new oral agents. So I don't think the nihilism around obesity management is justified. And I think if we change our targets and realize we're trying to treat the respiratory problem, we can get on and and sort out a reduction in body weight of five to ten percent and see r- real results. So, if they are not losing weight, Peter, would you then uh, not start biologics, or would you start biologics anyway? Okay, so that's an that's a so treatable traits resolves that issue really simply. What are the biologics there for? The biologics are there for managing T2 inflammation. So if the person has uncontrolled inflammation, T2 inflammation on inhaled steroids, then and they're having exacerbations, the next step is a biologic to treat the T2 inflammation. That's a separate trait to obesity. If you can, if you want to treat, if you start treating obesity and reduce body weight then the results of that trait will be an improvement in breathlessness. So it's two different things. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the uh, high-dose inhaled steroids? Um, Is it part of the decision concerning taking biologics if they are really on high-dose for a long period? Or is it the exacerbation? So uh, I, I think uh, exacer- they've got to be exacerbating despite a reasonable dose of ICS that you believe that they're taking. I think I think that's that's the usual approach. I think there is a related and interesting question, which is what is the value of high-dose inhaled steroids in the biologic era? And this is something that I think we need to rethink Uh, there was a time pre-biologics, and we're all old enough to remember that uh, that period, where we did use high-dose inhaled steroids because we didn't have a lot else to do. Um, but uh, I think in the biologic era, the downside of high-dose inhaled steroids needs to be considered. So Richard Beasley and I did a, 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 a meta-analysis looking at what do you get when you increase the inhaled steroid dose up to the sort of high level, so the two milligrams of FP or the um, uh, so two milligrams of BDP or above uh, one milligram a day of FP. And the answer is you get systemic effects, um, not much clinical benefit. And... Uh, You also get very marked in increase in drug costs as you go to high dose inhaled steroids. So I think this is questionable practice in the modern biologic era. And what we tend to do, and we really need to change this, is we wait too long before we start patients on biologics. You know, they go through this ridiculous Gina step four, you know, try everything but the kitchen sink sort of approach. Uh, when it's pretty obvious that they need to be on biologics, and and I, and I think um, that some patients lose, you know, 
lose lung function during this period, get people remodeling from exposure to oral corticosteroids, you know, lose uh, fitness, gain weight, get depressed. You know, th there's a lot of issues that accumulate while we're fiddling around with inhalers that are not likely to do anything. Um, and treatable traits would allow you to identify these hot patients earlier um, and get them in, for, into a biologic clinic earlier. Um, and I think the outcomes, all the evidence suggests that the outcomes of treatment are better if you can get in early uh, before the patient's extensively damaged by their disease. And osteoporosis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, and, uh, of course, high-dose inhaled steroids m may contribute to that too. Yeah. Thank you for this interesting issue concerning the different models of care. In the next episode, we will discuss how to organize an asthma clinic. If you are curious to learn more about treatable traits in asthma, we can recommend you to read the book The Asthmas, A Precision Medicine Approach to Treatable Traits, Diagnose and Management. <laughs>